Now, this morning, I'd really like to pick up on the reading that we heard from Isaiah, uh, the one that Charlie read to us first of all. There are two themes in that short passage, um, and I want to look at each of them in turn uh, and finish uh, with a question after each of those, looking at each of those topics. Um, as Charlie said in the introduction to the Old Testament reading, it is one of the four passages in the prophet Isaiah that we often refer to as <clears throat> the servant songs. Um, coming from a time somewhere about 500 years before the time of Jesus. When we look at these passages of Christ, uh, uh, as Christians, of course, we see how clearly and perfectly, really, Jesus fulfilled that, those pictures and images that we have of the servant in those passages. But uh, we don't really know who the prophet was referring to when he wrote those words or first spoke them. It may have been some particular individual, even himself, or one of the prophets, um, or maybe just the generally the whole community of Israel who had been called to be followers and servants of the living God. But in the pattern of our lectionary readings today, this has been placed alongside that reading from the Gospel of John that uh, Kate has just shared with us, which is obviously one of the accounts of Jesus calling his disciples. And so it seems reasonable to conclude that that passage from Isaiah may well have something to say to us about our following uh, as God's servants. Well, two themes in that very short passage, two quite different themes really. So have a look at both of them in turn. The first theme uh, in the early part of those verses contains a cry of despair. It comes from the servant. God has just said to the servant, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Displaying the splendor of the glory of God is quite a high calling, isn't it? And obviously the servant felt a bit overwhelmed by this, but not only just overwhelmed, but um, a bit fed up. The servant responds, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Or I have labored in vain, uh, to take another translation. Perhaps not a surprising cry of despair from somebody who was part of that band of Jewish people who were taken off, carried off in exile from Jerusalem many hundreds of miles away to exile in Babylon to a place they didn't want to go under circumstances that they didn't want to be living under. Not surprising to have that feeling of despair. When I was a child, I used to catch the bus quite often in the rural area where I lived, and I soon discovered looking at timetables that nearly all the bus stops seemed to be named after pubs. And one of the pubs was the labor in vain. And as a child, I used to wonder why on earth that pub had been called the labor in vain. I never did find out. One can only imagine. And maybe it was because the village had very uh, poor soil and the farmers who farmed there had to work jolly hard and didn't see much for their efforts. I don't know. But I wonder whether that cry of despair describes sometimes how you and I may feel in our Christian lives. We may feel like saying, you know, I've been faithful to God for many years. I've gone to church regularly. I've supported the church with my giving and with my energy. I've done various parts of Christian service in the community where I live. 
But has it been worth it? What difference has it made? We may reflect that in recent decades, the Christian church in Western society has declined in numbers and in influence significantly. Secular influences in society have become stronger. The voices of the atheists and the humanists have become louder. We may say, has anything that I've done for God's kingdom been worth anything at all? Has it made any difference? I think sometimes the problem is that we judge rather too superficially what is success and what is failure. Those of you who know me well will know that I am no fan of football. Um, I do know that there's a little club a few miles down the road, I think in this direction, that's called Fulham. Uh, but if you want to know anything about Fulham, I'm not the person to speak to. You could try speaking to Tony, of course, or to um, Francis. I think they know a little bit about it. But I did find myself watching a, a football match two weeks before Christmas. It was, of course, part of the World Cup. It was that famous uh, match between England and France when we thought we were really well on the way to victory in the World Cup. And uh, just a few minutes before the end of the game, Harry Kane missed a penalty shot that could have made all the difference to the result at the end of the game. We lost. We were out of the World Cup. But actually, I found something that was much more moving as to whether we lost or whether we won. When the manager of the team, Gareth Southgate, came at the end of the match onto the pitch and embraced all the players with warm hugs, words of encouragement and affirmation, despite the fact that they had lost the match. But then, of course, he had had a similar experience many years before, I think back in 1996, missing a vital penalty kick at the Euro match. And he knew the pain of failure. And so he understands the importance of encouraging the team, of affirming them in when they're doing well and when they're working together, even if they don't always get it right and manage to make what we call a, a success of it. Success is not always about winning. And in serving God, the key is faithfulness, not necessarily what we might judge as success. When Jesus hung on the cross, it might have seemed to him that his mission had failed. On a superficial level, he'd been very popular. His popularity had been very high in the early part of his ministry, but gradually that declined, didn't it? The people who should have been most ready to hear the message that he had to uh, give uh, about God, the religious professionals of the day, uh, seemed to be rather disenchanted with what he had to say. The people that he'd chosen to be, to be with him, as the gospel puts it, to be his supporters and his cheerleaders, deserted him at the crucial moment when he came to be arrested and tried and crucified. And that pain that he must have felt comes out in that cry of desolation on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet at the same time, he's able to put the thing back into the hands of God as he says, it is finished. The work is complete, it is accomplished, and into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. If you look back at that passage of Isaiah again, carefully, after those words of despair, have I laboured in vain? Is it all been a waste of time? 
the prophet goes on to say, but the Lord will decide what my work is worth. The Lord will decide. The Lord knows whether we have achieved what he called us to achieve, not us. And when Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote that great chapter uh, where he focuses on the resurrection, chapter 15 of the uh, uh, letter to the Corinthians, where he focuses on the resurrection of Christ, uh, he goes on at some length about it. The chapter runs to 58 verses um, altogether. And he makes various proclamations uh, of good news. Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has overcome death. Christ has conquered evil. Ultimately, Christ will reign over all. And when he said all those things, he arrives at the end of the chapter and in the final verse says, Therefore, because of all this, be steadfast, immovable in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, he takes that phrase from Isaiah and turns it completely on its head. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be faithful. Leave God to decide the outcome. And the question I want to pose that you might like to go on thinking about is this. Do we try to judge our own effectiveness in God's service? Do we try to mark our own homework? It's not up to us to do that. We are faithful. We leave the outcome to God. So that's the first of the two topics that appears in those verses in our short reading from Isaiah. The second is quite different, really. Uh, but again, we do well to reflect on it. And in these verses, towards the end of the passage, the servant hears God saying to him, you are an important servant to me to bring back Jacob and the people of Israel, but more importantly, I will make you a light for all nations to show people all over the world the way to be saved. One of the great lessons that the prophets, several of the prophets, but particularly Isaiah, tried to teach the Jewish people whilst they were in exile in Babylon was that God was not only God of the Jews but also God of the whole world, all the nations. God was present not only in Jerusalem where they had lived but in Babylon where they were in captivity and anywhere else they might go. God could be served not only in Israel and Judah but wherever his people found themselves. Yes, they were the chosen people of God, but they were chosen for a purpose. They weren't chosen just in order to be favoured people. And their purpose, the purpose for which they had been called, was to be a light to the nations. And if you think about it, it had actually been there right from the beginning of this business of God calling people. Because God has been calling people from the very beginning of time and the earliest story we have really, I suppose, is the story of Abraham being called. And Abraham is called to go to a place that he doesn't know about and God hasn't yet told him. Uh, and God promises that he will give him many descendants and that he will be a blessing, they will be a blessing to all nations. Somehow, through years of history in Israel's life, that vision about God blessing all the nations of the world through Abraham and his descendants became a bit dim in people's thoughts and consciousness, I think. 
they too easily fell into the trap of thinking that they were just favoured people. They needed to be reminded that they were a people with a mission. And that mission was worldwide, a light to the nations. Many years ago, I used to preach in a village chapel uh, in a circuit where I was appointed. Uh, I have to say, it was not the most uplifting uh, place to go and worship, either lead worship or be a member of the congregation. <clears throat> there were rarely more than 10 people there and not much sense of life. And uh, neither the members of the congregation nor the building were in much of a state of repair, I have to say. Um, but partway through the service, we would come to the notices and the offering. And uh, the elderly steward would come to the front. He would solemnly take a note notebook, small notebook out of his um, pocket and he would proclaim to the congregation, the collection last Lord's Day was four pounds, 50 pence. The preacher next Lord's Day will be Mr. Smith. The offering will now be taken. And that just about summed up the life of that congregation and church. Didn't seem to be any sort of contact or impact on the community where they were. It was simply bound up in coming together, giving money, going home again and waiting for next week. Not surprisingly, that chapel closed many years ago. In our gospel reading today, we heard the story of Jesus calling some of his disciples. He didn't call them to be a holy huddle, just in order to enjoy one another's company and being sheltered from the rest of the world. He called them in order that they could build a kingdom. And that's why he appealed to young men, people about his own age, I guess, because there was a sense of purpose and energy needed and vision. And before long, of course, they were sent out to work, to do work. They were given power and authority to deal with some of the powers of the enemy that were restricting people from living full and joyful lives. They were people with a mission. They were being stretched, go into all the world and make disciples. Some of the final words of Jesus, echoing those words in the prophet Isaiah, that people, God's people were called to be a light to the nations. Those words of Jesus uh, were quite clear, weren't they? And they echoed in the uh, minds of his followers and have done for centuries. And so as uh, we come to the end of that passage where the prophet is talking about his people being a light to the nations, he says it is too small a thing. One of the other versions it reads, it is too small a thing for you to restore Jacob and Israel. I will make you a light to the nations to show people all over the world the way to be saved. I suppose we could say it is too small a thing for us just to be members of a church where we can gather together and enjoy each other's company. Our church should impinge on the life of the world around us. Starting in Westminster, along with other churches, as Ali was referring to in the notices earlier on this morning, to the places where we live and work. 
It is too small a thing just to put a bit of money into the offering bag in church every Sunday. We are called to use all our resources in a way that will be pleasing to God and serve the purposes of his kingdom. It is too small a thing just to pray for people in our own family circles or amongst our friends who we know to have some kind of need at this time. To quote Charles Wesley in one of his hymns, we should extend the mighty arms of prayer to grasp all humankind. Our prayers should be large and broad. And it is too small a thing to serve God simply by doing a job in the church. Our help is needed in all sorts of ways to come alongside the homeless who need to be cared for, the hungry who need to be fed, their stories that need to be listened to, and to be in the places where decisions are made that affect the life of our towns and cities and villages. And so the question that I would like to pose at the end of this second topic that we find in our passage this morning is this. Are we living on a large enough map in terms of what God wants us to do? Are we living on a large enough map in terms of what God wants us to do? May God help us to live on a big map and with a large vision. And I'm going to lead us in a short prayer. Words of the prayer may be familiar to you. They are attributed to St. Ignatius of Loyola. Let us pray. Teach us, good Lord, to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for any reward except that of knowing we do your will. 